If you would please, please take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 2. <clears throat> as we are going to be looking at the resurrection text this morning. And as I said in the prayer, actually each Lord's Day is Resurrection Sunday. Because we celebrate the resurrection of Christ every time that we get together uh, for worship. It is by his life and death and resurrection that we have access to the throne of grace. I would ask you please to stand for the reading of God's word this morning as we look at Acts chapter 2. And we're going to start our reading in uh, verse 14. Let's hear the word of the Lord. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed the men of uh, Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young women, your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, and even my male servants and female servants In those days I will pour out my spirits, and they shall prophesy. And I will show you wonders in heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon to blood. Therefore, the day of the Lord comes with a great magnificent and a great magnificent day. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed with the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, because of it is because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand. And may not be shaken. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Please be seated. Let's go to God in prayer. Please pray for me as you sit, as I preach his word. Pray for yourselves as you sit on the proclamation of God's word. This morning, let's pray. Almighty God, our heavenly Father, we praise your holy name. If you are a God who is filled with kindness and mercy to your people, the God who has redeemed your people by the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, I pray, O oh God, that you would be with me now as I preach this text. And I pray that you would be with your people, that our minds would not be drifting here and there, that you would, Heavenly Father, work great conviction. To bring us to realize what a privilege it is and what a blessing it is to be together for the Lord's Day worship. And to hear the word of God read and proclaimed to us. Oh God, may your spirit work a grace upon grace. Be with me as I preach. I am not sufficient for these things, oh God. And be with the congregation that it would be profitable, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, in the wide world of sports... Uh, there is in our own day, and I'm sure for many years past, a great deal of, of baseball cards, baseball hats, and baseball bats, and baseball uh, bases, and all those kinds of things uh, that are collectibles. I read on the 
Internet, of course, it has to be true, right? That a baseball card last year, year before last, sold for $6.6 million. I had never heard of the baseball player. Uh, he was of German descent. Uh, his name was Honest Wagner. You might have heard of him. I'm pronouncing him correctly. You, some of you sports guys have heard of him. I've never heard of this man. He played uh, baseball from 1897 to 1917. They went on to coach and to manage and so forth until I think the 1930s maybe even. I can't really remember. But what makes this baseball card so valuable is it's rare. It was produced by a tobacco company. The American Tobacco Company used to uh, print baseball cards and put them in their cigarettes and Finally, they said, well, this is not a good thing. So they started putting baseball in, the, in chewing gum. But I don't care who put it out. I'd love to have had that card. And I'd have sold it for $5 million. I mean, 6.6. I mean, that is absolutely unbelievable. One thing that we can know for certain is that card is authentic. And I guarantee you, they checked it out. They had it tested. Many of you probably have seen the series Pawn Stars about the pawn shop in Las Vegas. And people bring in stuff that uh, is rare. And the owners of that place will always say this. They got a book that's signed by somebody, an album that's signed by someone, a coin or whatever. I got a friend I need to call. So what they do is they call the person the guy comes in and he authenticates it as being real or he authenticates it as being fake. And I've seen them both happen. And, of course, when it's fake, the people are very, very disappointed, which you can imagine they thought they were going to get 10000 bucks or so. Uh, and they find out that what they have is not uh, valuable at all, but rather it is a fake or a fraud. Well, in the text this morning, uh, the Apostle Peter uh, is concerned to point out the fact of the authenticity of the gospel message. And that he does so by pointing to a few things. One is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Another thing is the authenticity of God's stamp of approval on the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because God gave his stamp of approval on the work of redemption, as believers we can embrace it without reservation whatsoever and trust in the fact that you know you have redemption, you know you are saved. Listen to this. If you're a Christian this morning, you should have a confidence that when you die, you're going to be with Christ. Do you have that confidence? That's one thing Peter is it's really an apologetic sermon, a, a sermon that is trying to uh, validify and reassure people of the authenticity of the sacrifice of Jesus uh, and his life and death and resurrection for the good of re- the salvation of God's people. That's what he is trying to seek to do. And as Christians, we can ask ourselves this. Has this message that Peter preaches here in the first century, has it gripped our hearts? that you really recognize and understand the value of the gospel and the great hope that you have in the gospel message and that that identifies who you are and it gives you a sense of hope and confidence no matter what you're dealing with here in this world. Three things this morning. One thing is God's validation of the claims of Christ are seen in the efficacy of the work of Jesus. God's validation of the claims of Christ are seen in the efficacy of the work of Christ. The second thing, God's validation of the claims are seen in the accomplishment of the purposes of God. And so that Christ coming into the world was by no means a second thought or a chance event. And the third thing is God's validation of Christ's claims 
are seen in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. And the first thing, then, God's validation of the claims of Christ are seen in the efficacy of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to put this into context. Peter is preaching. They've just seen this phenomenal event, the day of Pentecost, where uh, the people are there assembled, and the people, as they are assembled, uh, this uh, sound of the wind begins to happen, and this thing appears, which is a, a single flaming tongue, it appears, and it goes and rests over the lives, over the, over the heads of the people that they are assembled for this worship. It is the day of Pentecost. Uh, Fifty days after Passover, a holy day in Jerusalem, and as you know, it was a time of a pilgrimage of Jews from all over the world to go there to participate in this great day of Pentecost, this great day of celebration of the blessings of God upon his people. And as we read chapter 2, I didn't read these chapters to you because of time, but there are people there from all over the world. And they marvel that they hear people speaking, not gibberish, not some inexplicable language that no one can identify. They hear them speaking in their own language. It would be as if we were assembled together and there were these people who were from different parts of the world that did not speak English. All of a sudden they are speaking English and we can understand them. And what we see happening here is a reversal of Babel. In Genesis, there is the account of the people who are building the tower to heaven. And as they build the tower to heaven, they are going to make a name for themselves, and they are going to establish themselves there so they will not be moved. And you remember, that's contrary to God's purposes for the civilization. They were to go throughout the world. They were to spread throughout the world. They're not intended to do that now. And so what God does, he goes down and he confuses their languages so that there is a judgment on the part of God as they can't speak to one another anymore. And as they can't speak to one another anymore, they go throughout different parts of the world. This is the very opposite of that. And so as the first act that happens in Genesis is a, a, a expression of judgment. What happens here on the day of Pentecost is an expression of God's grace. Disunity as opposed to unity. A great, great thing has occurred. What was pictured in the Old Testament, what was foretold in the Old Testament, for century upon century upon century, has now come to fulfillment in the New Testament with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so these people here, these foreigners speaking in their language, they are amazed at it. They are bewildered by it. And what is it that the people are doing? Uh, They are praising God. Listen to this. In the church of Christ... There should always be exhibited in the true church unity, not disunity. There are so many things that can happen to bring disunity in the church. People not getting their way, people getting mad, uh, whatever the case may happen to be. People being offended. That's not a picture of the church that God would have exhibited. The picture of the church that God would have exhibited is one of unity. And you see that here. This, uh, the first thing that we see Christ doing as the resurrected Savior 
Uh, he is the sending agent in this event that takes place. As Christ sent his spirit to these people that are gathered. The first thing that we see happening is an expression now of the unity of the church through Christ Jesus. As he is the one that is the sending agent, these people who cannot otherwise communicate normally are able to talk to one another. And this phenomenon of this Old Testament event, is this phenomenon of the New Testament event is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Joel chapter 2, 28 through 32. And this is not a normative event. It is a one-time event that takes place here and nowhere else. In contrary to so much of the neo-charismatic movement in our own day and age, it's not gibberish. They're hearing the people speak languages, their own language. And again, demonstrating the unity of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. When I was in seminary in St. Louis, there was a lady that came on the radio. I don't know why I listened to her. I don't know why... Steve would come visit me. I'd be watching Rock Church with somebody out of Virginia or something. It was terrible, but I was always watching. Steve said, why do you watch this? I, don't. I said, I don't know. It's just interesting. This lady would teach you how to speak in tongues on the radio. And she would help you develop a vocabulary. That is not what's happening here. That is not the same thing that's taking place. These people that are influenced by the Spirit of God are speaking languages that are known. And again, it is a one-time event, the fulfillment of this Old Testament prophecy, where again it shows the unity of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, a reversal of Babel, an expression of unity, an expression of the accomplished work of the Lord Jesus Christ who brings his church together as one. And after he appeals, after Peter appeals to uh, this event that's taking place, and he appeals to this to the Old Testament text that's of, uh, uh, is, is coming to realization in this, he begins to address them. And what he does is he defines the ministry of Christ and ties the ministry of Christ into this event that's taking place. And you recognize that uh, the ministry of Jesus demonstrates the unity of the covenant. As it was promised back, the writing of Moses in Genesis in the third chapter, the first promise of the coming Redeemer given uh, to uh, the world through Moses, uh, and uh, the prophecy foretold in David, you should have someone on the throne forever. These things finally come into completion, and the promise given to Abraham, you shall have a, uh, the, through your seed shall all the world be blessed. The ultimate fulfillment of that singular seed is Christ. So Christ then ties the entirety of the covenant and the covenant promises together. That's exactly what Peter is doing here. Men of Israel, he reminds them of the covenant. He reminds them of the covenant promise. This takes them back to their Old Testament heritage. This takes them back to Abraham. Men of Israel, you who are descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, men of Israel, I hear this. He speaks to them in theological terms, he comes to them now on common ground. This morning in Sunday school, we were talking about Mars Hill. And it's Paul at the Areopagus where he talks to uh, the Athenians. And he notices they are very, very religious people. And he comes to this one statue. They're polytheistic, as you remember. And this one statue says, to the unknown God. Paul appeals to that one. You men are very religious, I see. Great evangelist, you have here your God of a, 
uh, Jupiter, your God of uh, uh, Saturn, or whatever the case may happen to be, whoever it is that was there, perhaps some we don't even know today. But this one here, the unknown God, the God that you don't know, I want to talk to you about that one. So here, the Apostle Peter, very magnificent fashion, is saying that these events that were promised in the Old Testament, these events that were pictured in the Old Testament, well, they have come to fulfillment in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to understand this. These people that Peter is talking to are not atheists. They don't have a bunch of non-believers. They are there because of uh, Pentecost. They are there because they're faithful Jews. They are there because they're theists. They believe in the Bible of the Old Testament. And what Peter does here is say, well, I want to tell you what the Bible, what the Old Testament speaks of and leads us to. And that is about the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was coming to the world and who was going to fulfill all of the promises, all the, all the places in Scripture that speak of redemption. He is going to fulfill those if I may read to you, John 5, 19, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son of Man can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing, and whatever he sees, whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. So that Christ then, while he was here, was God's servant. He was truly God. He was truly man. He was fully God. He was fully man, and he was God's servant. And so remember, he said that his food was to do the will of the Father that sent him. And so then doing the will of the Father meant as far as his life was concerned, as far as his ministry was concerned, to be given over, to be done with, as the people pleased to do. And so he says here in this text, the one who was given over. It means to hand one over to his, to his enemies. He was given over to Pilate. He was given over to Herod. He was given back over to Pilate. He was given to the Roman soldiers who beat him, who would spit on him, who would mock him, who took him and whipped him until his back was shreds of flesh. Christ did this voluntarily because of you. Because of his love for you. Because of your sin. Because of my sin. He did this voluntarily. And behind it all, behind all of it, was not chance. Behind all of it was God working. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And so we see God's stamp of approval upon the work of Christ by the efficacy of it. That he accomplished salvation. He accomplished redemption. And so now that the gavel of judgment that would come down pronouncing upon me and pronouncing upon you the God's condemnation as being guilty before him because of our own rebellion, because of our own sin, now that gavel is lifted. And now the accuser has nothing to say before God's throne. Not because we're innocent in and of ourselves. But because of the verdict where we were pronounced not guilty, all owing to the work of Christ, must we embrace him by faith. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us, we read in the scriptures. Oh, the second thing that God's validation of the claims of Christ are seen and it accomplished his eternal purposes. So here in the text, 
we read that this thing that was done was done according to God's good pleasure and God's set purpose. Not by chance, not by some uh, second thought, but by the work of God, handed over according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God we read here in the text. You know, I have considered and I have thought, and I'm sure you have too, as to why is it that uh, why is it that God's condemned all to condemnation? Why is it that the fall took place? Why did God ordain such as that? And I think that Romans tells us better than anything else that I know of, and that is he has condemned all to condemnation. He's assigned all to condemnation in order that he may have mercy upon all. In other words, he, by his providence and by his working, has brought us all under guilt and condemnation so that we may know of his great grace and his great mercy and his great kindness. And we know from the Bible that there is a general mercy of God that expressed to all people, that all have an opportunity to respond to the gospel, though we are convinced of the reality of election And though we are convinced of the reality of God's providence being perfect and absolute, there still is that thing that is quite mysterious to us, that people are offered an opportunity to believe, and they choose to reject it. And so no one in hell can say, it's God's fault that I'm here. No, it is not God's fault that anyone is in hell. It was God's good purpose. And God's good pleasure from eternity past to deliver him up. That he might be the redeemer of many people. So Christ pictured in the Old Testament. Christ pictured and foretold in the Old Testament. And that great reference in Numbers chapter 21, you remember, I'm not going to read it to you because there are too many verses here in this one text. Uh, and he's in, uh, from Numbers where uh, the people rebel against God and God chastises them by sending fiery serpents into the, I hate snakes, sending fiery serpents in amongst the people. They're biting the people. And they're dying. I don't know what kind of snakes they were, but there's no such thing as a good snake, in my opinion. If there is. Anyway. Um, so what happened is Moses, you know, was told to build this bronze serpent. He puts it up on a pole. So when people are bitten by these fiery serpents, they look at it in faith and they live. So Jesus said, as the serpent was lifted up in the Old Testament, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That is a direct reference to this event that took place in Numbers. Whereas the serpent was lifted up and by faith they looked upon him and believed. So as Christ lifted up by faith, we look upon him and we are saved as they were saved in the Old Testament. But that salvation, in the Old Testament was temporal. The salvation we have in Jesus is eternal. It never changes. Such is God's great love for us and God's great mercy toward us. He accomplished the purposes of God by coming into the world according to God's foreknowledge, according to God's good pleasure. And what took place took place exactly according to God's plan. And you notice where the rest, the blame rests. It's not on God. So two groups of people, it's on Jews and Gentiles. Peter does not say here, God's at fault. 
It was his set purpose. It was according to his good pleasure. Therefore, he is at fault. Well, according to the Bible, God does not sin, nor does he tempt anyone to sin. And so the blame is put where it belongs. It is put upon the Jews who delivered him up and the Gentiles who put him on the cross. You, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on the cross. In order that God's good purposes might be accomplished in the work of Christ upon the cross of Calvary for his people. Well, then, how do we know that it has any efficaciousness? How do we know it's efficacious at all, then? How do we know that what took place on the cross of Calvary has any benefit to us whatsoever? Well, let me tell you this. A dead Savior never saved anybody. A dead Savior never saved anybody. A dead Savior can't save anybody. So had Jesus stayed in the grave, there would be no church today. And Jesus stayed in the grave, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. If there is no resurrection from the dead, Christ has not been raised. Either follow your logic. If there is no such thing as a resurrection of the dead, Christ has not been raised either. He's still dead in the grave. He says on top of that, above all people. The most I love, 1 Corinthians 15, above all people, the most to be pitied are Christians. Because they believe in something that is a lie. And they have no redemption at all if there's no resurrection from the dead. But I love that verse. It's a crescendo of literature concerning redemption. But now Christ is raised from the dead. Here, it says, as Peter preaches this text, raised him by loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. You put him to death. You, with the help of lawless men, put him to death. But God raised him from the dead, loosening the pangs of death and condemnation. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? To swallow it up by the work of Christ on our behalf. And so we look forward to, if your faith will take you here, we look forward to the return of Christ and the dead coming out of their graves by the work of God's power. And what Paul says there to the letter of the Corinthians, that which is sown perishable shall be raised imperishable, that which is sown mortal shall be raised immortal. That's the climax. That's the zenith. That's the conclusion of the work of redemption. And we have the guarantee of it because here Peter in his preaching, you put him to death with help because you had no authority to do it yourself. You had no authority to put him on the cross yourself. But you did it with the help of wicked men who took the innocent Lamb of God, who took the Son of God and nailed Him to a cross. You with the help of wicked men put Him to death. But God raised Him from the dead. And so we could have taken the body of Jesus off the cross. We could have taken it to the morgue. We could have hooked it up to all kinds of machines. It would register. Everything was flat. No pulse, no heart rate, no brainwave function whatsoever. He was dead. He wasn't passed out. He wasn't sort of dead. He was dead. Totally and completely dead. There, listen, is the end result of sin. Death. 
but he was raised from the dead against all opinions, against all plans to stop it, against all reason, because dead men do not come back to life, against all odds. Christ came back to life by the power and the working of God's Spirit in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the authentication of the work of Christ in the cross of Calvary is seen by his own resurrection. God raised him up. I wish worship was two hours long instead of one. Puritans used to worship sometimes for three hours. Let's try that. I know you got your ham, you know, whatever, ham. I don't know why to eat ham on Easter. It doesn't make any sense to me. I love roast. So read in the scriptures, if let me read this to you, these great things resulted from uh, the work of Christ on the cross of Calvary. Uh, the benefit to those who are of faith, Colossians chapter 1, 13 and 14, and you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your heart, of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of your trespasses. Do you see that? By counseling the record of debt that stood against us in his legal demands, this he set aside by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities that put and put them to open shame by triumphing them over, over them in him. And the rulers and authorities here are Satan and those who would condemn God's people. He, he, put, he shut their mouths, if you will, by putting them to open shame, by triumphing over them. In death, so that now the accuser has no power against us whatsoever. Even though we failed, he's got no power against us. He can accuse us before the throne of God, but it makes no difference. And then finally, Second Corinthians five twenty one, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There is our hope. In Second Corinthians chapter five, I'm sorry, Second Kings chapter five, there is this account of this man named Naaman. Naaman was a great warrior, and Naaman had a problem, and that is he had leprosy. So Second Kings chapter five tells us about this girl that was captured, and. She knows of this prophet that lives in Israel, and she says, I wish that my master would go, that his name would go to him, and he would heal him of this disease. And here's what happens. Naaman goes to him. This is recorded in Second Kings chapter 5, and uh, he takes all this stuff with him to give these gifts to, uh, to the prophet. And the prophet says this, go down to the river and wash yourself seven times. You know what happens. Naaman gets very angry. Aren't the rivers in our land good enough? I thought he was going to ask me to do something hard, something difficult, something great. But he tells me to go wash in the river. You know what his servant says? If he had told you to do something great, you would have done it. Well, now he's told you just to go wash in the river seven times. Go do it. And he does. And he's healed. All we have to do in order to have salvation is embrace Jesus. By faith, embrace Christ. The one who is dead and the one who is alive forevermore. Embrace the Savior. It has been done for us. And we know that it has been verified by God himself.
through the efficacy of the sacrifice, through the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, accomplishing what God intended, and through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Does Christianity seem ho-hum to you? Have you been a part of it for so long? This is just another Easter Sunday, just another day when we again hear the same old story of the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Ho-hum, ho-hum. If that's your attitude, one of two things is true. Either you're not a Christian or you're taking for granted, you're taking for granted the great work of Jesus and what he accomplished and the great blessings that are ours in him. I know that when I close my eyes in death, I will wake up in glory. That's Christianity. That's what Christ accomplished. And so Jesus said to the thief on the cross today, you may be with me in paradise. That's not what he said at all. He said today, you will be with me in paradise. I guarantee it. And listen to this. A guarantee from Christ is quite sufficient. That's the promise. Do you know him and do you love him? If you don't, Know him and you don't love him. He is there with his arms open, ready to receive you into himself. I want to urge you to come to faith and then rejoice in who he is and what he's done for you. You know how we do that? You know how we show our gratitude for that, right? You know how we show our love for Jesus? You know how we do that, right? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. What a blessing worship is. What a blessing God has given us in Lord's Day worship. When we get together and we praise this great Savior who has done such marvelous things for us by His grace. Let's pray.